The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was born to a lower-class family of rural tradesmen in 1840. Eighty-eight years later, he died as one of the most celebrated writers in England. His name was Thomas Hardy, and he was at the same time the product of the Victorian era and one of its greatest critics. But how did this man go from being a builder and architect to writing poetry and eventually the novels that made him famous? What made this budding young priest turn away from the church? And why, after becoming a successful and highly accomplished novelist, did he quit writing novels altogether, turning back to poetry for the remainder of his years? We'll have the story of Thomas Hardy today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. I'm glad you're joining us today. (laughs) Is that like Mr. Rogers? Is that where I took that from? I'm so glad you're joining us today. Because you're you. (laughs) You are Lisa Simpson. Oh, I'm in a sentimental mood today, I guess. A little sappy. Maybe it's the holidays. Maybe it's because I love Thomas Hardy so much. He's one of my favorites. I feel like he goes straight to my core, like a knife plunging into me. He's not sappy, though he can be melodramatic. And maybe some of his poetry is a little out there with his heart on his sleeve, exposed and vulnerable. But he's way too bleak and pessimistic for anyone to confuse him with Mr. Rogers. He's one of those guys who gets me going because he's so sincere. He's like those people who see the world with complete, clear-eyed vision, who see the hypocrisy in the world. They see human nature with all of its warts. They see life for the majestic tragicomedy that it is. And then they put that into their writing. They set that forth as their honest take on the world. And then they look around as everyone else is shocked, and they think, what? <laughs> you didn't agree? That's, that's not how you see things, too? It's like someone who discovers a dish, a food. Let's say it's, let's say it's the Earl of Sandwich. Let's say the Earl of Sandwich puts meat in between two slices of bread and starts eating it, and everyone sees how obvious that is, but also how strange, because it's new, and they start making a fuss. The Earl of of Sandwich is eating meat between two slices of bread. And the Earl of Sandwich just dabs the crumbs from his mouth and looks around, confused, and says, Doesn't everyone do this? That's the key. That's sort of how I view Hardy. That he's not sitting there thinking, oh my God, putting meat in between bread is a genius idea. This will shock him. I'm the first one to think of it. And all these idiots around me are incapable of coming up with something as genius as this. Hardy took a look at society and especially all the restrictions and repressions of the Victorian era. And he was writing from a lower-class, rural England perspective, and he said, well, okay, but you do know that sex is happening here, right? We can all share that, can't we? 
that life is as it is and not as we're pretending it to be or not as if we think it should be. You are all pretending to profess these morals, but you're aware that you're pretending, right? You're all in on it. You think it's hypocritical and you know it's hypocritical, right? And then the shock that he provokes comes as a bit of a surprise to Hardy because he thought everyone else was as self-aware and as aware of society as he was. And sometimes they were, but a lot of times they weren't. Sometimes I wonder if people are shocked or just they think they're supposed to be shocked. It's hard to untangle that sometimes. There's a great story about Hardy. As a child sitting in church, he wrote about this years later. It was a, an episode in his life he never forgot. He was sitting there watching the sermon being delivered, and he suddenly was seized by the idea that the priest could hardly stop from smiling, that his mouth was just ready to twitch with a smile, with a laugh. Hardy was just a young boy, but he thought, no one can take this seriously, can they? And the priest can't either, surely. And he's just going to crack and laugh and we'll all laugh with relief. He just stared watching that sermon, just stared at the corner of the priest's mouth, just waiting, seeing if he could see that twitch. Such a great story about Hardy. You don't get that sense that he writes from the position of, you are all idiots, I'm the genius, I'll tell you what to think. I'll deliver the truth from on high. I have a singular vision for how the world works, and the rest of you sheep will just have to accept the wisdom in what I hand down. Hardy's a little more like, well, this is how it looks to me, and I'm sure it looks this way to you too, but for some reason the people in charge seem to be pretending otherwise. But we all know differently, and they do too, so let's just talk about what's real rather than this charade. The Hardy-esque view can be bleak, and it can be objectionable for a number of reasons. We don't have to see the world through Hardy's eyes and accept that it's true, necessarily. But I think you do have to accept that Hardy was sincere. In his novels, in his poetry, he was sincere, achingly sincere, as devoted to the truth in his writing as he must have been to the good principles of sound engineering in his first career as an architect and builder. No one wants to build a house that's going to fall down. And for Hardy, didn't want to write a novel that wasn't based on the truth. But before we get too far into this, let's hear from a listener. This email comes... Oh, excuse me, there's someone knocking at the door. Hello? Hello? Hello. I'm Elizabeth Bennett, Elizabeth star Bennett. of the novel Pride and Prejudice, the here to star. deliver a morsel of news. Mr. Darcy and I are expecting. Hmm, my goodness. Huzzah to us. Huzzah. However, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a young couple in possession of an infant must be in want of some sleep. Hmm. Fortunately, our impoverished neighbor, Mr. Jack Wilson, oh. has offered to babysit our beloved little one. So Darcy and I can catch some Zeds. Won't you please support the cause of love, literature, and new life? We shall be eternally grateful for your good sense and your good sensibility. Oh, Liz. 
busy. Yes, we want to help you. <laughs> Lizzie came for a couple of reasons today, I think. One is she wants to remind you all to help out the cause of literature, life, and what else? Happiness. Help us out if you can. Help out this podcast with a quick trip over to Patreon to sign up for a small monthly contribution. That's patreon.com slash literature. Or you can make a one-time donation at Patreon... No, oh, wait, no. You can make a one-time donation at historyofliterature.com slash shop. Sometimes people pay for all year right there all at once, which I'm fine with. Helps me pay the bills, and I am very grateful. Lizzie also came today, I suspect, because she wanted to remind us that she was the OG of 19th century British novelists writing from the countryside, as Hardy was. Although... She was in a slightly superior position to Hardy, socially. I read one critic who said the Hardys would not have been welcome in Jane Austen's parlor. Seems a little mean. (laughs) The Hardys were respectable people, but I guess there's a kind of rigidity to the class system there that's important to understand. It affected Hardy all his life. He turned against the church. He himself was planning to be a priest at one point. But let's back up. He was conceived in what we might call sin. His father was a builder. His parents met and fell in love. And his mother, Jemima, became pregnant. And then Thomas was born five months later. She wanted the best for young Thomas, so she made sure to get him into schools where he excelled. But then he went into his father's trade, building, and he was good at this too, especially the architecture part. He started getting jobs, helping to restore churches and to make additions onto the property that the upper classes needed in prosperous Victorian era. But then he was thinking about being a priest, which was possibly a more cerebral job that would have suited him better. He was also writing poetry at this time, though he couldn't get anyone interested in publishing it. But to stick to uh, religion for a moment, he attended a sermon and the priest railed against the lower classes who are trying to improve their station in life through the trades. That's what the priest said. (laughs) A whole sermon dedicated to criticizing people of the lower classes who were striving, trying to use the trades to move up in the world. Well, for Hardy, those were trades like his and his father's building And Hardy was furious at religion, at the wealthy, at the the privileged, all those who would take such an attitude. Why keep everyone down? Hardy lived in London for a while and was shocked by the disparity in wealth, the great ostentatious displays that he saw at his architecture office, which was near Trafalgar Square, standing right next to the grinding poverty of what was still Dickensian London. And he thought, you hypocrites, pretending all this isn't happening, and then, in a supposedly Christian church of all places, criticizing the honest and industrious poor. He was more comfortable in the rural areas, which he himself made famous in his novels. He was from the southwest of England, Dorset and Dorchester, which I'll pronounce sometimes as Dorchester. It's 
sometimes as Dorchester, so I could please everyone and no one at the same time. He called all this Wessex in his novels, and it became hardy country with tourists going to see it. In fact, apart from a few amazing plots, which I'll get to, was probably his description of the countryside that made Hardy such a success in his day. And even today, really, he described the rituals and general life, special events like county fairs and so forth, with a love for detail and an insight that still makes his scenes vivid and unforgettable. We're jumping around a bit, and I promised you an email. So let's get to that. Actually, let's take a quick break. Come back with the email and then learn more about Thomas Hardy. Grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. This email is subject, a bone to pick. Oh, listeners, let me interrupt Say, I get these emails with subject lines like a bone to pick or two things on my mind. They might as well say, I hate you, Jack Wilson. That's how my heart feels when I see those subject lines. All this free content I'm giving you. Almost 200 episodes. I think this is 195. All this free stuff, my heart pouring out to you. And then the subject line is a bone to pick. Okay, pick my bones. You might as well spend 200 episodes bleeding out, my heart pumping every last ounce of blood onto the desert floor, and the vultures have already taken whatever else is left of my flesh. I'm just a bleached skeleton in the desert, chattering away like those skulls with hinges on their jaws. Pick a bone, any bone. Why not? I'm kidding. Not every subject line makes me think. It says, I hate you, Jack Wilson. Maybe the ones that that say, I hate you, Jack Wilson. Maybe those. (laughs) Can you blame me? You cannot blame me for that. Here's Todd 
Subject, a bone to pick. Dear Mr. Wilson, a while back I listened to your podcast on the subject of Dostoevsky, which led me to read Notes from the Underground, which led to Crime and Punishment, then Bulgakov and Gogol. Hmm. Hmm. This doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> Maybe this was an ironic email title. The email continues. Suddenly, I'm a Russian literature nerd, and I blame you. How am I supposed to keep friends when all I want to talk about is subjects like why the Constance Garnett translations are horrible? She uses way too many words and phrases that sound completely British. She makes Dostoevsky sound like a bad Monty Python sketch. I hope that you haven't subjected others to the same fate. Sincerely, Todd. P.S. I also really liked your book, The Race. Well, Todd, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed The Race and that you are enjoying the podcast. And thank you for the very sweet email, which came disguised as an angry email. <laughs> the lamb walked in wearing a, a wolf head. If only the emails with the subject line, I hate you, Jack Wilson, would take a similar attack. I hate you, Jack Wilson, for doing such a good job. <laughs> I used to have a roommate in Italy whose room was only separated by a thin wall from another one of our roommates who was a little bit overbearing. Hope he's not listening. You could always hear him making tapes for his girlfriend <laughs> through that thin wall. And he'd say, I hate you, Shalini, because you make me miss you so much. And my friend would tell us about this, come to the breakfast table, bleary-eyed, hadn't slept, because all night he'd been listening to these tapes being made. And he'd tell us, where is he getting that boo 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 Frank Sinatra? <laughs> we didn't know. It's a mystery to this day. Well, Todd, I don't know what to tell you. You might need to choose between literature and your friends. And if that's the case, I would say your friends can go. I'm kidding, of course. You need to strike the right balance. You can't pepper all your friends with this stuff if they don't care about it. They'll get very tired of you very quickly. Listen to the podcast. Send me emails. Find a few weirdos to chat with in person and find your literary friendships in the authors themselves. That's what I do. Jane Austen is a really fun friend and so is wild-eyed, crazy Dostoevsky. And Chekhov, my God, I feel like he's my best friend sometimes. As if he could be sitting in the chair right now here in the studio. Except I know he's way too busy and I don't get to see him as often as I like. So, I'm like everyone else, and have to get my fill in the sort of one-sided way of reading his works, which are like letters speaking to me, but in the manner of deep understanding, as friends do. Chekhov knows me. Keep up the reading, Todd, and thank you for the email. Let's take one more break, and then we'll explore the world of Thomas Hardy. It's no accident that in one of Hardy's most famous novels, 
Tess, the character, comes from an ancient family called the Durbervilles. But they have fallen in status and are now just called the Derbyfields. Something similar happened to the Hardys. The Hardys had once been called, according to the family's folklore, Lay Hardy, and they were significant landowners. Hardy repeatedly pointed out that his ancestors were skilled craftsmen, master masons, rather than mere laborers, and that his father and grandfather had their own business and employees of their own. But the rest of the world didn't really see it that way. For them, Hardy's father was a man who worked on small projects, a half-step up from a laborer, if that. Hardy's mother was a domestic servant who got pregnant before she was married. The way the world viewed Hardy's family was a chip on Hardy's shoulder for the rest of his life. We talked already about his early career, how he got an education, became a builder, an architect, went to London, thought about becoming a priest, wrote poetry that he couldn't get published. On one of his projects, he fell in love with a spirited woman named Emma. And here's another chip on his shoulder. The woman's parents objected to Thomas as a potential suitor because he was beneath them. At that point, Hardy turned to writing novels and he found some success, helped along by George Meredith. We don't have Hardy's first novel. It was a a satire of London, and the rejections were somewhat fierce, and Hardy burned the manuscript. But Meredith, who was one of the advisors for one of the publishers that Hardy had submitted it to, saw something in it, and he suggested to Hardy that he tone things down, not make his points so starkly, be a little more subtle. Hardy took his advice. Actually, they called the rejections fierce. There was some encouragement in there, too. Hardy was praised for his style and his skill. They just thought, the publishers just thought his views were too anti-society, anti-establishment, too socialistic. So, Hardy wrote a new novel called Desperate Remedies and paid a publisher a guarantee against royalties. 75 pounds, Hardy put up. The publisher needed the money from Hardy in case the novel was a flop. But it did well enough that Hardy got most of his money back, and then the publisher agreed to pay him £30 for the next novel, Under the Greenwood Tree. And then the real money came when, based on the success of those two or the, the talent displayed in those two novels, Hardy was asked to serialize his next novel, which is how a writer in the 1870s in England could make the real dough serialization in one of the magazine's readers would pay for one installment after another, and novelists just needed to keep their interest, which is why sometimes the books from this era are full of great characters and fantastical plots. Every installment would need some twists and turns, maybe even a cliffhanger. Oh, and there we go. There's the sound that announces that I am the winner of this episode of the History of Literature because I said the magic word cliffhanger, which is the award that we owe to Thomas Hardy, who in one of these novels called A Pair of Blue Eyes ended an installment with a character literally hanging from a cliff. <laughs> Let's hear the moment, a great little moment in the history of literature. This is from A Pair of Blue Eyes, a novel by Thomas Hardy, which was written in installments. And this is the Literally, the first 
cliffhanger. Between the turf-covered slope and the gigantic perpendicular rock intervened a weather-worn series of jagged edges, forming a face yet steeper than the former slope. As he slowly slid inch by inch upon these, Knight made a last desperate dash at the lowest tuft of vegetation, the last outlying knot of starved herbage, ere the rock appeared in all its bareness. It arrested his further descent. Knight was now literally suspended by his arms, but the incline of the brow being what engineers would call about a quarter in one, it was sufficient to relieve his arms of a portion of his weight, but was very far from offering an adequately flat face to support him. In spite of this dreadful tension of body and mind, Knight found time for a moment of thankfulness. Elfried was safe. She lay on her side above him, her fingers clasped. Seeing him again steady, she jumped upon her feet. Now, if I can only save you by running for help, she cried. Oh, I would have died instead. Why did you try so hard to deliver me? And she turned away wildly to run for assistance. Alfred, how long will it take you to run to Endelstow and back? Three quarters of an hour. That won't do. My hands will not hold out ten minutes. And is there nobody nearer? No, unless a chance passer may happen to be. He would have nothing with him that could save me. Is there a pole or stick of any kind on the common? She gazed around. The common was bare of everything but heather and grass. A minute, perhaps more time, was passed in mute thought by both. On a sudden, the blank and helpless agony left her face. She vanished over the bank from his sight. Night felt himself in the presence of a personalized loneliness. And there we have it. Tune in. <laughs> Subscribe now to hear what happens to Mr. Knight and his <laughs> paramour, Elfried, as Knight dangles from the edge of the cliff. By the way, those blue eyes of the title belong to that woman, the high-spirited Elfried, who was in fact based on Emma, whom Hardy was able to marry, thanks in part to the success of his serialized novels. His mother objected to the marriage as well. It was not a, it's not one of those marriages that parents were in favor of or eager for. The story of their marriage ended up being kind of a tough one. It has some ups and downs. The two were madly in love at first. Then, as time went on, they started to grow apart. What appeared as high spirits in Emma, at first, kind of gave way over time to an immaturity. Some have called it ditziness, which might be a little cruel. Maybe it's safer to say an unseriousness or immaturity that bothered Hardy. We can imagine that he was also not the same person as he was when they got married. He might have changed. That might have been part of it. He had aristocratic guests who would stop by the house. They were drawn to him for his success. And I wonder if some of that was what Emma had thought she was signing up for. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe some of her behavior was due to insecurity that her builder husband, a half-step above a laborer who married up when he married her, was suddenly being celebrated by a whole class of people who would almost certainly have peered down their noses at her. She also had to deal with being in his books 
recognizing versions of herself in them, which is never easy. Maybe I shouldn't say never. Maybe if you're Dante's Beatrice, it's okay. And I don't mean that (laughs) just the fact that Beatrice was already dead when Dante was writing about her, although I guess that's one way to look at it. I mean, unless you're some kind of divine being in the books of your spouse or your partner, you'll always have some kind of flaw. And even if you're not flawed, you'll see yourself through their eyes, which is not comfortable. It's about as fun as listening to your own voice on a recording if you're not used to it. She also, Emma, also refound her devotion to Christianity, and so she didn't like Hardy's treatment of morals or the church, his attack on the hypocrisies of religious figures, or his stark treatment of sexuality. Tess of the D'Urbervilles, one of his most widely read books, has sex, even rape, in it. The mayor of Casterbridge has the unbelievably good plot idea, which was based on a newspaper account of an actual event that Hardy read, of a man who sold his wife and child to a sailor. Don't you want to read that book now? Hear what happens? What if I tell you that the woman and the child come back? Confront him. Don't you want to know what happens? I'll let that just sit there for you, dangling from that cliff. Emma didn't love her position in the Hardy household or in the family. She didn't like the guests. She didn't like his books. Didn't like what they said about her or really what they said about him and what was on his mind. Once, while he was entertaining visitors, she pressed a Bible in his hand and told him to read it. She was viewed by the outsiders as erratic, and Hardy was viewed as kind of a put-upon husband, a sufferer, almost a martyr for putting up with her. She moved out of their bedroom and into the attic. This was a house that Hardy had designed, by the way, which is still there. She lived in the attic. It sounds pretty miserable for both her and for Hardy, their relationship. For years, they lived this way. Meanwhile, he was becoming the toast of England, a very popular novelist with Casterbridge and Far From the Madding Crowd and the Woodlanders and Tess of the D'Urbervilles all doing very well, and a half a dozen or so other novels keeping him in the public eye. He was prolific. People wrote him letters. They wanted to visit him. Eventually, tour groups would come and see the places that his books were based upon. He was living that kind of life, and yet he had a wife in the attic who despised him. Jude the Obscure, his final novel, pushed things over the top. It's so stark, it almost seems as if Hardy had a kind of novelistic death wish. The wish was to kill himself off as a novelist. It's so incredibly bleak. His biographer said that reading Jude the Obscure is like getting hit in the face over and over. Why would Hardy want to do this? Well, maybe it's that tension he felt, the pull between his honesty and writing what he thought was palatable to the world. Or maybe I should say what his publishers thought was palatable to the world. One of his editors, the Reverend Dr. Donald McLeod, warned him to avoid anything direct or indirect which a healthy parson like myself would not care to read to children at the fireside. Even a Less religious editor, Leslie Stephen, a sophisticated man, offered some criticism to Hardy that his heroines often got involved with scoundrels. Too often. Hardy said, well, 
Women often do marry the wrong man, don't they? And Stephen said, not in magazines. You can feel the novelist chafing at this. Oh, really? Don't they? Well, let me introduce you to my new character, Jude. Jude starts out with hopes and ideals. He studies hard, hoping to make his way from poverty to a university, which is sort of a stand-in for Oxford. For years, he does this, working hard. Then he slips up once, giving in to a seductress named Arabella, whom he then has to marry to do the right thing, even though he's already started to loathe her. She leaves for Australia, which lets him, gives him the opportunity, to, the room to have a free love relationship with his cousin and his soulmate. But what seems like it might offer some prospect for happiness turns into a disaster, as the Victorian institutions work to make their life miserable. Marriage, family, church, the university, all of these work against Jude again and again and again, until it seems like society itself hates humans, or maybe it's God. Hating humans, wanting them to repress their natural instincts and ensure that they are miserable. By the end, actually, let's do this. Let's hear some of the end, the shocking passage that kind of shocked the world and finished off Hardy as a novelist. Let's hear some of this. This is Jude discovering a horrible event that has happened to his children. His children have been told, have seen the struggles, been told that there's another child on the way. I'm going to give you a couple of warnings here. One is that this is a difficult passage to hear. The other is, it's a spoiler passage. If you are interested in reading Jude the Obscure, you may want to skip over this part. Here we go. This is from the climactic scene of Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure. Jude stood bending over the kettle with his watch in his hand, timing the eggs so that his back was turned to the little inner chamber where the children lay. A shriek from Sue suddenly caused him to start round. He saw that the door of the room, or rather closet, which had seemed to go heavily upon its hinges as she pushed it back, was open and that Sue had sunk to the floor just within it. Hastening forward to pick her up, he turned his eyes to the little bed spread on the boards. No children were there. He looked in bewilderment round the room. At the back of the door were fixed two hooks for hanging garments, and from these the forms of the two youngest children were suspended by a piece of box cord round each of their necks, while from a nail a few yards off the body of little Jude was hanging in a similar manner. An overturned chair was near the elder boy, and his glazed eyes were slanted into the room, but those of the girl and the baby boy were closed. Half paralyzed by the strange and consummate horror of the scene, he let Sue lie, cut the cords with his pocket knife, and threw the three children on the bed. But the feel of their bodies and the momentary handling seemed to say, that they were dead. He caught up Sue, who was in fainting fits, and put her on the bed in the other room, after which he breathlessly summoned the landlady and ran out for a doctor. When he got back, Sue had come to herself, and the two helpless women, bending over the children in wild efforts to restore them, 
and the triplet of little corpses formed a sight which overthrew his self-command. The nearest surgeon came in, but, as Jew had inferred, his presence was superfluous. The children were past saving, for though their bodies were still barely cold, it was conjectured that they had been hanging more than an hour. The probability held by the parents later on, when they were able to reason on the case, was that the elder boy, on waking, looked into the outer room for Sue, and finding her absent, was thrown into a fit of aggravated despondency that the events and information of the evening before had induced in his morbid temperament. Moreover, a piece of paper was found upon the floor, on which was written, in the boy's hand, with the bit of lead pencil that he carried. Done, because we are too many. Hmm. Many there is spelled M-E-N-N-Y. It's a horrible passage. It's, uh, hard to take, hard to read. Mm. And the establishment readers kind of had enough when they read this. Jude the Obscene, said the Pall Mall Gazette. Hardy the Degenerate was the headline in the world. It didn't help that after the, the Sue and Jude are dealing in, with their grief, they go, uh, they go outside, they go to the, the church, and... Sue thinks, those two people are talking about us. We're made a spectacle onto the world and to angels and to men. And Jude listened. They weren't even talking about Jude and Sue. He said, no, they're not talking of us. There are two clergymen of different views arguing about the eastward position. Good God, the eastward position and all creation groaning. That's very Thomas Hardy. Here's two parents in the throes of grief, in the throes of abomination, unbelievable tragedy. They see two clergymen. Do they offer hope? Do they offer solace? Do they even offer criticism, rebuke? Nope. They're arguing about the eastward position, which I had to look up. Refers to the practice of the clergy during the Eucharist, whether they have their back to the the congregation, which meant they were facing God, or or should they face the congregation, depending on how the the churches tended to be built, it meant they were facing east or facing west. And so there was an argument, is it better to offer up the offering by facing God? Should you face the congregation. This is what they're arguing about. And Thomas Hardy says, he puts them, he puts this argument right smack in the middle of this very human tragedy. Hardy says, the world drove Jude to this, put this obstacle in Jude's way, put this horrendous event there, made these children think that they had to take this step what does the church have to offer? Technical argument. Sort of a symbolic point. Certainly not directly applicable to what Jude and his, his uh, soulmate 
are going through at that point. Nevertheless, the establishment did not like hearing that representation of themselves. Jude the Obscene, I said, Hardy the Degenerate. This was 1895. The trial of Oscar Wilde was still fresh in their minds. That's where we are in the world, in England at this time. They're on the verge of some liberation, but still holding on to the old ways. The resistance to Hardy after Jude the Obscure was furious. Eddie, as he had to have known that it would be. A shameful nightmare, said the review in the Church of England's newspaper which, quote, one only wishes to forget as quickly and completely as possible, end quote. An Australian reader was so upset he burned his copy of Jude and mailed Hardy the ashes. What a a letter that would be to get, right? Open up the envelope and pour out the ashes of your book. What do you say to that? I'm glad you bought it. Thanks. Other readers emailed Hardy to say, I hate you, which resonated with me. And one said, I have a bone to pick. Let me stop there and say, I was just seeing if you're paying attention. Back to reality. Hardy could take some comfort in the fact that all of these scandals, there were literally book burnings being organized. They seemed only to help rather than hurt the sales of the book. The public liked the scandal. And I think they were moving away from the Victorian era, too. This was probably resonating with them more than it seemed from the critical response. Hardy was gloomy. He noticed acquaintances turning away from him now rather than speaking to him. Emma was angrier than ever, and he never wrote another novel. Instead, he turned back to poetry, his first love. He now had the name recognition that Finding a publisher wasn't difficult, and there was a new appreciation for his poetry from the reading public and from critics alike. What had once seemed a little erratic in his verse now looked innovative and fresh. He published the poems he'd written in his 20s, and he kept writing poems for the rest of his life. He speculated once that if Galileo had written his discoveries in verse, the Inquisition might have let him alone. Poetry was a better vehicle for Hardy at this point. He could be as as bleak and as pessimistic and as cynical and as honest as he wanted. The verse and the ambiguities of verse seemed to protect him, seemed to save him, seemed to give him some room to explore in a way that his novels did not. Hardy wrote hundreds of pages of poetry, and his poetry has continued to rise in esteem. Since his death, later poets of the 20th century, like Philip Larkin, admired them greatly, just as novelists like D.H. Lawrence had viewed Hardy as their pioneering artistic hero in the world of novels. When it came to the poems, there's another curiosity that also puts an interesting coda on his marriage to Emma. Remember when I told you about those visitors to the Hardy household when Hardy was writing his novels? Emma would swing by and push the Bible into Hardy's hand, kind of embarrass him, announce that he needed to read it. One of the visitors who came during that period was a younger woman named Florence, 
who loved Hardy's books and admired him. She became his secretary, quote-unquote. When his wife Emma died, the pretense was no longer necessary, and Florence and Hardy soon got married. Curiously, though, the death of Emma filled Hardy with a kind of regret for how his marriage to Emma had gone, those years of antagonism. And in a, a fit of intense nostalgia for that period when they met and fell in love, sort of took over Hardy. Probably the period he's probably remembering his own youth as well. Became one of his greatest recurring subjects in some of his greatest poems was his love for the young Emma. It's kind of sad in a way. He was in love with Florence when he was unhappily married to Emma. And then when he was married to Florence, he could only think of the happiness he'd felt years before with Emma. It's a bittersweet contradiction. But then so much of Hardy's life and works were full of contradictions. This is personal life and growth butted up against the hard reality of Victorian institutions. And the same thing happened to his characters. Religion, education, love, sex, marriage, class. These were all sources of contradiction for Hardy and sources of bittersweetness. The life was bitter. The outlook on life was embittered. But Hardy made it sweet through his art, both in his novels and his poetry. And he lived kind of a sweet life, too. Widely recognized as a great writer, even in his time. And one final bittersweet contradiction. After Hardy died, the nation mourned the great loss of one of its greatest citizens and writers. His London friends insisted that his body belonged at Poet's Corner in Westminster Abbey, even though he himself had had such an antagonistic relationship with London and the wealthy and the privileged people who lived there, and of course, the church. This was not where he wanted to be. His wishes were for him, his remains, to be in the countryside, where he'd lived almost all of his life. First in the simple and sturdy home that his father had built, and then in the simple and sturdy home that he himself had built. In the graveyard there, he would be surrounded by the tranquility of the countryside, the nature that he loved, the customs and joys and heartbreaks of the people whose traditions and customs he celebrated and championed and made famous to the world. But the powerful won their victory, as the powerful so often do. Hardy's wife Florence was overruled, and he was given a state funeral. Ten pallbearers carried his coffin, including the prime minister and the leader of the opposition, Rudyard Kipling and A. E. Hausman, and the heads of Cambridge and Oxford College, two schools that didn't accept Hardy, and he wouldn't have been able to afford it even if they had. These pallbearers carried Hardy's ashes to the vaunted Westminster Abbey in a great ceremony that Hardy didn't really want ensuring that Hardy would in death be where he was in life, carried against his will by the representatives of institutions that asserted their power over him. Quite literally, he would be buried under a church and by people that he didn't want to bury him. They meant well, I think. It was a nation trying to celebrate an esteemed author, 
but symbolically it's hard not to see the bleakness of this except except that florence didn't quite let all of that happen the young wife had a role to play too hardy's body was burned but not all of it was burned and so it came to be that hardy's ashes lie in poet's corner in westminster abbey except for his heart his body is in london but his heart was buried in Dorset. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Oh, man. What a great writer, Thomas Hardy. I hope I didn't scare you off by reading that passage from Jude the Obscure. For the right kind of person, in the right frame of mind, there's nothing quite like Jude the Obscure. Tess of the D'Urbervilles and the Mayor of Casterbridge are also worth reading, far from the madding crowd. But Jude the Obscure goes where few novels dare to go. H.G. Wells was a fan. He wrote a piece, although it was unsigned. Come on, H.G. Stand up for, for your fellow novelist. Put your name on the piece. He wrote an unsigned piece praising it, saying, quote, There is no other novelist alive with the breadth of sympathy, the knowledge, or the power for the creation of Jude. End quote. But those critics were there too. Naked squalor and ugliness, said one reviewer. One of Hardy's closest friends wrote, What has Providence done to Mr. Hardy that he should rise up in the arable land of Wessex and shake his fist at his creator. End quote. Well, what has Providence done to anyone who's skeptical and cynical? Life isn't always a bed of roses, people. And it's not always a friendly podcast episode either. And even when it is, it has to end at some point. All these have to come to an end, as all good things do, including this episode. Therefore... I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>